good play by Blackwell. Moves in with Lafreniere. He scores his first NHL goal. Alexei Lafreniere wins it in overtime. What a goal. What a moment for the number one Rangers draft pick. Hey now, hey now, welcome to season 11, episode 2 of the Sportscasters, my name is Steve Bennett, this is the 10 year anniversary celebration of the Sportscasters, we're going to do it all year long, Uh, and I have some exciting stuff right out of the gate, this is a great week to be a fan of my work, if such a human exists, if you're my mother, for example, it's a great week for you. On Monday, I posted the fifth episode of the 24-inch podcast. Myself and Dave Rollins put that out. It is the 1991 Royal Rumble, and it's an important point that Dave was making to me. He's like, we got to make sure people know that Hulk Hogan is the jumping off point to the story that we're trying to tell on that podcast. Right, We use Hulk Hogan to talk about uh, the wrestling in that era and the when we read the news, the nostalgia of the era that is told through pop culture and through the news. So the, the podcast itself is a nostalgia play, right? And we start with the nostalgia of Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania. And we pick out a moment in that run and then we tell the story of the opponent or in this case the match, the Royal Rumble. Or maybe the show, like in episode four, or Saturday night's main event, we told the story of network TV and wrestling, you know, and then we also, we read the news of that month and we talk about what was going on in sports and in culture and in hard news, you know, January 1991 is one of the most loaded news months of the decade. So we tell the story of the time through Hulk Hogan, at least that's what we're trying to do. So we did that Monday at the number two, the number four inch podcast on Twitter. Now today, as you wake up on Friday, you have season 11, episode two of the Sportscasters. And I was going to do Damon Hack and Brian Curtis. I think I said that on Twitter. Uh, But as the week went on and more interviews were scheduled, I ended up with four interviews in three days. Damon Hack was first. We did one hour on Tiger Woods. First time we've ever done it. We took the uh, documentary that was just released on HBO, the two-parter, and we broke down the life and career of Tiger Woods that way. Damon was awesome. I was okay, uh, but Damon was very good, and I think you'll enjoy that. If you, if you, I know some people are really looking forward to it. Uh, my friend Calvin Crowell, especially. Uh, So I can't wait for Calvin to hear that one. He's going to have to wait a couple more days and he probably won't be happy with me. The second interview I did was uh, with Sean McDonough. 
And Sean McDonough came on the podcast uh, when he was the play-by-play man for Monday Night Football. For about six or seven years in a row, I got the play-by-play man from Monday Night Football on the podcast. So it started with Chirico, who was on for two or three years, then McDonough for two or three years, and then I had uh, Joe Tessitore as well. And then this year I did not get uh, Steve Levy, but I, I actually didn't try to get him not that I wouldn't want to just didn't it just didn't work out because of the way things shifted at ESPN in terms of PR and my contacts there uh, and I just kind of laid off on it when McDonough went from Monday Night Football to college football the person who controls the PR situation at ESPN changed and there's a uh, uh, an executive there named the Bill Hoffheimer who was the PR guy for NFL and he's great to me, really nice. He's the most prompt emailer. I mean, even if it's a no, he tells me in 30 seconds, you know, which I super appreciate. I've said many times on this show, it seems like the answer is always either yes or you don't hear back. Well, I hear back from him, and it's great. Uh, but when he was at NFL, I was getting the Monday Night Football guy regularly. The college football PR person was someone named Kerry Potts who told me that it's against ESPN policy for ESPN employees to be on my show. Okay. Well, I would say to her, well, I've had this person and that person and this person. And she just would not budge. So I, when McDonough went to college, I couldn't get him for a few years. Well, now Hoffheimer is doing college. So he's back available to me. And knowing I was going to get him, I wanted to ask him, and you'll hear that interview right after this segment. I wanted to ask him about broadcasting in the pandemic a little bit. You know, has he done offsite, onsite? And I did two questions on it, in and out. And then I was preparing for it the other night, and I was just watching his calls. He has so many classics. I'm like, you know what? I just want to talk to him about these calls. I want to talk to him about calling a walk-off home run in the World Series and the College World Series. I want to talk to him about calling a buzzer beater in the NCAA tournament, Rip Rip Hamilton. You know, I want to talk to him about the 1998 Hockey Olympics that he called. You know, Pavel Bure's five-goal game. I want to talk to him about the Michigan-Michigan State game that ended on the last play of the game, a punt. That was, the ball was dropped and Michigan State picked it up and took it back to the house for the win. You know, I want to talk to him about Devonta Smith, the touchdown to win the national championship from Tua. So that's what we did. We did all those. Uh, we did, of course, Francisco Cabrera, Sid Bream. We did that play. Awesome, right? So that interview's next. You'll hear it next. Uh, then tonight, a little while ago, I did an interview with Brian Curtis. Now, Brian Curtis is a writer for Ringer. He's an executive editor at Ringer. He's a really, really nice guy. Very kind to me. And he's one of the guys that I've been relatively close with uh, offline. You know, a text here and there, whatever. And he was coming on and coming on. And then all of a sudden, he had to reschedule. And then he had to reschedule again and then again. And then he couldn't do it and text him in four months. And then I would. And it just was really strange. And... It's my assumption that it was because of the ringer and the and the um, 
and the uh, the union stuff that went on there, which I don't know enough about to comment on. And I bring it, I bring it up to him in the interview, and it's a funny moment. Now, tomorrow is my last interview of the week, and that's with Richard Deitch. So in the end, I had four interviews, which means I'll have two shows, and one is out now, and then the next one will be out, like in the middle of the week next week, Wednesday or so, Thursday, whatever. Space them out a little bit. But I had to split them up 2-2, and initially I was going to do Damon and Brian. But I want to put the Sean McDonough interview out so badly, and I don't want to have Deitch and Curtis on the same show because it's maybe too similar, some of the topics. So I'm going to do... McDonough tonight, then we'll take a break. We'll update the book club. First book club book of the month for 2021. I'll announce what it is and talk about it. And then we'll come back and we'll do the Brian Curtis interview, and then I'll be back for plugs and one last thing. I'm going to say this, and maybe this is my first things first here. I did not, I did not love my interview with Brian Curtis. I did not think I had my best my best interview. Now, I love the interview with McDonough. And I was so excited to talk to Brian. And it just didn't, I did not, I just didn't do a good job, I don't think. And I'd be interesting to, I'd be interested to hear from you. Feel free to email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, uh, at sports underscore casters on Twitter. I just didn't think I did a good job. And, you know, I laid my cards on the table. Brian has a, po- a podcast called The Press Box. And it's with someone I love, David Shoemaker, who wrote the greatest wrestling book I've ever read. It's actually right in front of me. The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. And David's been on and very kind to me. And I love David and I love Brian Curtis. I do not love necessarily The Press Box. And it's not because of those guys. It's just sometimes it's too much for me, the politics and all that. And I got just too far, I think, into that rabbit hole. And, you know, it's like cards on the table. Okay, I'm a lot more right than you. And he's so cool about it. You know, but I just didn't think I did a good interview. I really didn't. And I'm frustrated about it. Uh, But I'm going to, you know, of course put it out. First of all, he gave me his his time. I'm not going to waste it. And I'm not going to take a knife to it either. It's going to be what it was. You know, there's about 20 minutes of it I'd like to just cut out. But I'm not going to do that. Maybe I should. I don't know. But I just, you know, I think I let my frustrations with the media sometimes get the best of me today. You know, and I just think I could have utilized the time with Brian better. You know, but the... See, what was on my mind is like, I want to do a different interview with Brian than I'm going to do with Richard. So I saved a lot of the sports media specific stuff to do with Richard because he and I have such a great back and forth on that. And usually when I have Brian on, and I said this to him, usually it's because he wrote this amazing article, but he's been writing so much less now. And so much of his work is focused on the Press Box podcast, that I got into this point where I wanted to talk about media and how media is approaching the Biden administration so far. 
And I just don't know if it was great. I think part of me wasn't being as honest as I wanted. And I think maybe Brian was holding back a little bit to be polite to me, too. I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is, too. But I just, you know, I text Brian. I said, I just think I stunk tonight. I don't think I did my best interview. You know, and 10 years into this, I guess sometimes, I guess in 10 years, maybe not going to have your fastball. I don't know. I wish I wish I did better. And I can't wait to have Brian on again. He says he's back in the mix now. And I'm not going to wait that long. It had been almost three years since he'd been on. Uh, and I, I just got lost in that a little bit. And instead of having this awesome article to jump off of, it's this media podcast that he does. You know, him and another liberal with, you know, liberal ideas and liberal thoughts. And I wanted to say, hey, what about this? And hey, what about that? And it just, nah. Ugh. Damn it. Damn it. But the McDonough interview, I'm proud of. It's awesome. And I can't wait to, for you to hear it. So in a second, I'm going to step away and let you do that. So to recap. This is season 11, episode 2 of the Sportscasters, and I said last time, and maybe you missed it, but you're wondering, so it's the 10-year anniversary of the Sportscasters, but the 11th season? Yes, one time I got impatient and wanted to tell someone to book them that it was going to be the season premiere, so I said, will you come on the season premiere, and we moved ahead from season 2 to 3, I think it was. But since then, every year the season starts in January and ends in December. So, except for that one time, but it creates a situation where we are on season 11, episode 2. In a second, Sean McDonough will update the book club, then the Brian Curtis interview, and then I'll be back for one last thing. Then next week, middle of the week, season 11, episode 3, and we will talk to Richard Deitch and Damon Hack. And then, the following Monday, will be episode six of the 24 inch podcast and we're going to look at the war to settle the score from 1985 so that's where i'm at that's my schedule uh thanks for listening i appreciate that and i have something so exciting going on too and i hate when people say this right like i have something but i'm not ready to announce it but i'm i'm, I'm not because and i'll explain why when it when it becomes a thing, I'll explain why I was hesitant to bring it up on here. But uh, it keeps me up at night. I'm so excited about it. I'll say that. All right. All that, I think, is what I wanted to say to get this thing kicked off. And uh, we'll take a break. And it will be with my great pleasure and honor to return uh, with the great Sean McDonough. Our first guest tonight is a Syracuse graduate, and he is one of the all-time great sports broadcasters. He's called the NFL, college basketball, college football, the World Series, the Masters, the PGA Tour, the NCAA Tournament, anything you can think of. And he's making his either third or fourth appearance on the show tonight, and I'm so proud of that. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Sean McDonough. Hey, Mr. McDonough, how you doing today? 
I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Very, very good, and I appreciate it so much that you you came back to do this. Uh, we used to do it once a year when you were on Monday Night Football, and then when you moved over to the college side, I kind of lost you for a couple years. But now that uh, Hoffheimer's over there, it's good to be able to reach out and get you back. Thank you so much. Well, my pleasure. And now that we've done this more than once, I appreciate your politeness, but please call me Sean. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair yeah. enough. I'm sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, Mr. McDonough just makes me feel so old, which I am. But uh, I'd rather not feel that way. And, and and we're friends. Sure. I understand. I do. I'm sorry. Bad habit, I guess. Cause... No, don't be sorry. All right. Uh, look, at, I really appreciate you coming back. And um, I know in the, the, the one, uh, at least one of the times, we did talk about a few of these calls. But it's years ago now, and I thought it'd be fun. So in a second, we'll go over some calls. But I want to ask you just a couple quick questions real quick. First of all, uh, I know you're calling the Duke and... Is it Syracuse game? Uh, Miami. Miami, Miami that's right. uh, Monday night. Monday night. Yep, that's your next game. Uh, an, an ACC game, obviously, Duke-Miami. It's been interesting to see what's happened to Duke this year, not the Duke that we are used to. But I'm just curious how calling the games has gone for you in the pandemic. Have you done a mix of in-studio and in-person and – how have things been the same or different? Do you like it more or less? Like, how, just in general, kind of how have things gone for you calling games during the pandemic and the different world that we're in this year? Well, I haven't done anything, excuse me, for ESPN that is from the studio or from home. Every event that I've done has been in person, you know, whether it was the PGA Championship of Golf in August in San Francisco or college football the entire year. And now into basketball, you know, I've just worked with groups that have been on site, which I'm grateful for. You know, it's a little bit scary traveling, but, you know, I've come to believe that air travel is pretty safe with everybody masked up and with the air systems such as they are to recirculate the air constantly. What I understand from friends of mine in the health and family members in the healthcare world, you know, that's, that's pretty safe. So, uh, thankfully, I've managed to stay healthy. You know, the it's different. You know, it's not as fun. It's not as fun with no fans in the stands. Obviously, but some places there, you know, no atmosphere at all. Does make a little bit of a difference, even when there are some fans. And, you know, in the case of the football season, I did a lot of games where our spotter Zach Patrizone, our statistician Brian Taylor, weren't even in the same booth as us. So, you know, I was looking at their work. Uh, Zach spotting shot uh, on a TV monitor. He had a camera shooting at his spotting board in another part of the stadium. And then, you know, I'd look at a TV monitor to see who he was pointing at, who had the ball, who made the catch, who made the tackle, whatever the case might be. So, you know, that's been different. You know, we get tested every week. That's uh, certainly, you know, it's almost become routine now. But, uh, you know, I just feel like even though it isn't ideal, given everything that is happening in the world, all the real struggles and suffering that's taking place um, you know, I'm not going to feel sorry that our job's a little bit harder to execute. I'm just grateful that we still have the opportunity to do it. Sure I, I was wondering about volume because watching a lot of your calls and I watched a ton the last 24 hours you like to bring the volume up and in a normal situation when you know Francisco Cabrera gets that hit the stadium's going nuts, and as you're raising your volume to match the drama of the play, part of the reason I'd assume you're doing it is to get over the crowd a little bit. 
these arenas are. Oh, so, that's for sure. Yeah, you and know, these arenas are absolutely. so. Yeah. Uh, you're yelling to hear yourself basically over the crowd noise, and uh, now most of the games I do, there is either isn't any crowd noise or there that's kind of annoying fake crowd noise. So it's different. You know, you really do in a lot of cases kind of have to supply your own energy and excitement level and, and hope that it isn't fake. You know, I, I still enjoy calling the games and I still think they're meaningful. So you know, when there's a big play, I, I do get excited about it, but it's definitely a little bit harder to probably give it your best call without the crowd noise there to support it, and continue to it. Yeah. I was just thinking about that when I was watching, I'm like, it must just feel like you're screaming sometimes in your headset. Um, because all of a sudden now you can hear yourself in that moment where in the rest of your career probably didn't hear it at all. And you're just hoping that, you know, you're holding up. And right. Well, you know, I have call. these infamous yeah. voice cracks every now and then. <laughs> right. and I think yeah. that's a big part of it. You know, you, you stop hearing yourself because the crowd is so loud. You know, that's why singers, for example, wear those earplugs when they perform, you know, whether it's the national anthem or just concerts, whatever it is, because a big part of being able to control your voice is being able to hear it. And, when you can't, um, that's when you tend to lose control of it. So, um, yeah, I think that's been a contributor to some of my famous or infamous voice cracks, depending on how you feel about it. I, I kind of, it doesn't bother me. I think we might have talked about this the last time I was on with you. You know, it's, it's, it's a part of it, and hopefully it adds to the moment for the people who are watching. I was a little surprised watching some videos that some people had even made a comment about the cracks at all, because to me it's just... A reflection of the excitement and creates the uniqueness of your style, I think. I mean, but I guess there's people who complain yeah. about everything, right? I mean, there's people who complain about Gus Johnson being too loud or, you know, Pat Summerall not being loud enough, right? So there's a way to dislike everything. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I don't pay any attention to it. You know, if I could control it, I don't even know if I would try to. You know, as I said, it, it really comes from not being able to hear yourself when it's really loud. And, you know, I think our job is hopefully to have our call reflect the magnitude of the moment. And I think for some people, you know, my squealing or whatever adds to why they remember the Francisco Cabrera play that you mentioned at the end of the Michigan Michigan State football game. You know, I I, I hope that for some people at least uh, that the call made it more memorable, helps them remember it. So it doesn't bother me, and that's another reason why I don't have Twitter because you know. Uh, if people are offended because <laughs> right. my voice cracked in the middle of a call, then uh, you know I would hope that they have more important things to worry about in their lives. But a lot of people who are on Twitter don't. Charles uh, Barkley, I think it was, uh, once said, "It's where people go to feel important." So if that stuff like that makes them feel important, then good for them. One of the wisest decisions you've ever made. If I didn't have to, if I didn't, yeah, have I just to- don't have the time or interest. You know, I really don't, and it's. Or defense uh, against myself responding to somebody sure. who said yeah. something that I didn't like. So, if I didn't have this show, I know a lot of people in our business who engage people on Twitter, and you know, it's, it's kind of silly, and it's it's just to me a distraction. So, you know, do your job the way you're supposed to do it, the way you feel like you should do it. Um, if people like it, that's great, and if they don't, that's unfortunate. But you know, there's one thing I knew before I ever even got into this business is nobody's gonna like. Everybody, you know, no announcers ever had 100% approval. Maybe Vince Scully. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but uh, other than him, you know, right. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about him. But, um, 
but other than him, I don't think any of us have ever had a 100% approval meeting, and we never will. You know, we have a legendary hockey announcer in Buffalo named Rick Jenneret, and uh, I sure. thought I thought that he was loved by all of my neighbors. You know, I never had met a person who didn't like Rick Jenneret until Twitter, right? You know, like, I didn't know there was someone out there who had a bad thing to say about Rick Jenneret, but I found one on Twitter, so... I, I guess that proves the point. Yeah. It proves the point right there. Well, there, there are right? some people in our society who really don't like much of anything, right? And uh, True. And I do think that Twitter tends to skew toward the negative from parts of it that I've seen. Um, but, uh, yeah, as I said, I don't spend much time. And I, and I bet Rick doesn't care very much if there are people who don't like him. You know, uh, Although I know a lot of people in our business who are extremely popular and get much more hung up yep. on the negative, you know, the very few negatives than they do just relax and appreciate the overwhelming positive uh, praise that they get. Well, Joe Buck and I talked about it on this show, you know, about dealing with the negatives and, and how much he's worked on it, you know, personally. So I know, you know, exactly. Like, I hope he ignores yeah. it. You know, he's working on it for sure. Think, and I don't understand. As I said, I, I don't pay much attention to Twitter um, and I don't have a Twitter account, but the, uh, you know, I do know that he gets beat up a lot on Twitter, and I really don't understand it. I mean, I, I think he's an excellent announcer, and well, I don't think you do, you know, ten thousand World Series and you know, twenty Super Bowls. Or I'm obviously exaggerating, but you know, he's done so many of the biggest events in our country for a long time. Somebody must like it. I think he's doing a good job. I'm certainly one of those people who feels that way. Well, I I want to get to the calls, but I, I have a theory since we it, it, we got to it here. I think that the the Joe Buck hate or the hate for announcers in general is rooted in baseball because what happens is, and I throw this out and you can agree or disagree. I think what happens is, is with baseball, you spend so much time on your team, right? It's like this daily grind and every day in 162 games and 99% of those games, you are listening to local announcers on an RSN or on the radio, especially the radio guys, and you get a really, really home-cooked version of the broadcast. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, listening to a Yankees game and having Susan and Sterling call it the way they do, it's it's awesome, you know, but it's biased. You know, growing up watching the Braves on TBS, it was very, very Brave-centric um, broadcast. Nothing wrong with that. But then sure. when, you get to the, when you get to the playoffs and the biggest games of the year, and your blood pressure is up, and every pitch is so magnified. Suddenly, you have this national crew. It's such a it's such a shock, I think, to the system. And if you look on Twitter during Game Seven, I did this Game Seven of the Astros Yankees when Altuve hit that walk off. I I searched Joe Buck's name, and I found just as many people saying that Buck was calling it against the Astros, and then the same amount saying he's calling it against the Yankees. Right, because I just don't think I don't think people are used to the balance in in the style of the announcing. Because in baseball, you spend that daily grind for six months with your guys. So, and then I think that that then builds into the other sports. You know, someone like Buck who does you know football and baseball and such high profile. I think it kind of is built into there. I don't know if you have a thought about that at all. I cooked that up on my own. Well, Maybe I'm crazy. I think the reality is I think the first person i've heard say this was kurt gowdy that you know when he would do the world series back in the day before twitter obviously or even email 
he'd get letters and he when he got an equal number of letters from each fans of each team saying you were biased against our team he did it right that's when he <laughs> knew he had called it straight down the middle so right. you know that's going to happen people take the slightest inflection in your voice or they take one comment and extrapolate it to you hate our team you know i i think the vast majority of us who do network play by play really don't give a hoot which team wins you know um you know, sometimes that's hard to play it down the middle. You may, you know, have had a particularly bad experience with a coach or a player on one team and you like the people on the other team. It's just human nature. But, you know, I, I think uh, most of us don't even think about who's winning or losing or that we want one team or the other to win or lose because we're just doing the job the best we can. You know, and these people get obsessed with, you know, he hates our team or she hates our team. I think most of the vast majority of the time that's, just a bunch of nonsense. All right. From now on, when I say that, I'm going to say Kurt Gowdy has this theory. I'm not going to try to credit it to myself anymore. Um, all right. I want to. Start. No, you can credit it to yourself <laughs> and uh, you know Joe Buck. No, who am I to you steal know, from Kurt I'm, Gowdy? I'm sure, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know it's. Uh, I, I really don't understand uh, the, the vitriol that gets directed at Joe. Uh, you know, I think he's an excellent announcer and a and a really good guy. I, I can't say anything because he's been amazing to me, and I'm. I mean, really amazing to me, above and beyond. So I'm a huge, huge Joe Buck guy, and people get on me. And yeah, say, say well, I'm, I'm not a fan surprised because he's, he's a good person. Uh, I consider Joe a good friend, and uh, you know, we interact quite regularly. And I think he's an excellent guy. All right, most of it's on text. But, uh, he's uh, he's a terrific guy. I want to spend the rest of the time on some calls, whatever I have left, because I was preparing and just watching video after video after video and it's like man these are some awesome moments i gotta ask about these even if i ask them about one or two of them that's all right we can double back all right let's start with cabrera because i mentioned it earlier so the 92 nlcs you're calling it for cbs you're a pretty young man at the time um the thing i think that gets lost in that game and i want i want to ask you what you remember about it is in the top of the ninth i think it was the ninth maybe it was the eighth but in the very late stages of the game, the Pirates hit a double, and Buffalo Bison's legend, Orlando Merced, got gunned out at home by Dave Justice uh, to keep the score 2 nothing. Kind of a forgotten play, but I watched your call of that, mm -hmm. and that was awesome, too. What do you remember about the Justice play and then kind of leading into the ninth and uh, to the moment for Cabrera? And, of course, Bonds not being able to throw out the slowest guy in Major League Baseball, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. It is a forgotten play because I've kind of forgotten about it, too. And I shouldn't because one of the things that happened when the pandemic hit last March was that a lot of these sports networks started replaying classic yeah, games. Yep. You know, MLB Network has replayed that game, the 92 Game 7 between Atlanta and Pittsburgh, a lot of times. Remember, they did a series, I think it was called Baseball's Greatest Games or something like that. Bob Costas yep. and that game I believe was picked as number four all time and I think you could make the argument that it should have been ranked even higher than that I mean it was a classic game um, you know for a lot of the reasons you kind of just touched upon I think everybody knew it was really the last chance for the Pirates with Barry Bonds likely to leave and Jim Leland probably leaving and you, know, you just knew that was the last opportunity for that nucleus and you know, they're ahead 2 nothing going to the ninth and uh, Chico Lee made an error um, on justice, you know, and he was right. one of the best defensive Justice, second yep. baseman. And 
you know, the, the Achilles heel for that team was the bullpen. And, you know, they, they pushed Doug Drabeck. It was an unbelievable performance by him. And they pushed him, you know, as far as they possibly could. But you kind of knew Atlanta, you would have a chance if they could get into that bullpen. And obviously they did. And there was just so much that went into the bottom of the, the ninth inning. I think another forgotten play is, and I know Pirate fans feel this way and will forever, you know, they, they felt like they had uh, Damon Berryhill struck out a couple times. Right, yeah. And, uh, you know, Randy Marsh didn't call strike three. You know, and, of course, he wasn't even supposed to be the home play umpire that night. But John McSherry... Uh, wasn't feeling well and left the field. Unfortunately, that was kind of a precursor to him dying a few, I don't know how long it was later, but uh, in a similar situation. So, um, yeah, there was a, a tremendous amount that went into that game. I mean, it, whenever it comes on, I find myself watching it and um, thinking that I was really fortunate to be there for one of the great games of all time. Do you remember if you thought he was going to be safer out when he rounded the base? Like, do you remember – can you close your eyes and remember what you were thinking when? Uh, not really. Not I mean, really. I think you could just tell from our vantage point it was going to be close. Okay. I mean, you know, you you can see, you know, the, the Bonds is coming around throwing, and here come Bream toward the plate. I mean, you just knew right. it was going to be really close, unless it was a bad throw. Sure. Um, which, you, you know, it was slightly offline, just enough that, you know, the catcher, LaValle, had to, you know, reach across one way and then try to, come back with the tag and um yeah yeah but i, I think i don't specifically remember what was in my head but I, you could tell it was going to be a close play which i think you know you can hear a little bit of it in the that, wow this is going to be yep. close you know yep. which it was the, you know the break you mentioned the braves bullpen not only did they have their better bullpen but they also had steve avery to pitch the ninth too so um, not a bad luxury there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, meant, I think I meant the Pirates bullpen. You know, the Pirates well, well bullpen no, you had said that. The, the, if the I Braves. said the Braves, I, I meant the Pirates. No, you I said. I believe it was Stan Belinda who you know first came into the game, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was a classic. A lot of things that unfolded there in the ninth inning. Prior to it, one of the things that you know Bob Costas was nice enough to reach out to me one day when that was replaying almost a year ago on MLB Network and. You know, it, it was amazing how fast the game was. You know, it was right. the starting pitchers were just getting the ball back and throwing, and throwing strikes and, you know, retiring people. And I, I think the whole, even with that ninth inning, I, I don't think the game was much more two hours, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I remember I remember anyway. where I was watching it. I remember my mom came home from work in the middle of the ninth inning and watched the rest of it with me. So I remember it very clearly. I tried to find out the answer yeah. to this. Do you know if you are the only person – to call a walk-off home run in the college and pro World Series, I think so. Um, you know, I you know there there haven't been that many. Obviously, Joe Carter's home run the next year in '93 uh, for Toronto in Game Six of the World Series against Philadelphia was only the second time that the World Series had ever ended on a home run. You know, Bill Mazeroski for the Pirates in 1960 right. was the first one, and then. I believe when I did the Warren Morris walk-off home run for LSU against Miami in the College World Series, I'm terrible at remembering what year things were. But I think it might have been '96. That's right. Um, yep, that's right. That was that was the first time that the College World Series had ever ended on uh, a home run. So just by logic, I would have been the only person that. Now I don't know if it's happened since, but you know, you would have had to be, be someone who has called both the World Series and the College World Series. And you know, Joe Buck has pretty much called every 
World Series. Right, but I couldn't find him doing college. I don't think he's ever done the College World Series. Yeah. I probably am. That's pretty wild. Any anything you remember? But I'm not sure. I've never tried to fact check that. Anything you remember about the college one? Enjoy that event. Oh sure. Yeah. You know, I remember that uh, Skip Barton was the legendary coach at LSU. And, you know, before the game, uh, you know, we kind of went through the lineup because you know a lot of, you don't know a lot about these college teams right. before you get to Omaha. So the coaches are nice enough to kind of go through the, the entire team and give you a couple comments about each guy. So. He had talked about what a shame it was that Warren Morris is a really good player and has some power, but he couldn't. He hadn't hit a home run all year because he had a wrist injury that prevented him from kind of turning on the ball. So he was a left-handed hitter, as you remember, Steve, because you watched it. But the, uh, you know, but he was basically just up there trying to slap the ball in the left field all year long because his hands and wrist hurt. So. I think that was part of the surprise in the call was that he hit a home run you know, he, he, and he turned on it. He hit a screaming line drive down the right field line that barely cleared the fence. So, you know, I, I think that's what I remember most of that it was an unbelievable ending no matter what, but particularly from a guy who had been able to hit a home run all year, mostly due to injury. Yeah, almost Kirk Gibson-esque uh, with the injury. Yeah, and then, you know, it, and then you fast forward to a couple of years ago, I went back and did some Red Sox games on their radio network and, Alex Cora was uh, the manager at the time, and obviously he'll be back this year as the manager. But I, I went down and introduced myself to him, reintroduced myself to him. And uh, he, he said, uh, you called that LSU-Miami game. Um, yeah, and I said, yeah. And I remember, I know why he brew it, uh, knew why he brought it up, because he was the shortstop who was memorably laying on the ground, face down yeah. in the dirt in the yeah. infield while Wild. Morris is you know, jumping around. As he's rounding the bases, so yeah, that was another part of it that will stick in my memory forever. Was all the great reaction shots, which is another reason why you know, something like that happens. You know, when when Sid Bream crossed the plate, I think I went a long time without saying anything. And, you know, the same thing with uh, Warren Morris and Joe Carter. You know, I think we all kind of learned that from Vin Scully, the the best. You know, I, he had talked about. Sometimes when a big moment would happen, he'd just get up, stand up, and step away from the microphone so he wasn't tempted to keep talking. So you know, there's nothing we can say in those moments, like at the end of the Michigan Michigan football game. You know, let, let the pictures and sound take over because that'll be better than anything we can say. We might as well do that one next. Of all the ones I was watching, that's the one that to me is like, how did that happen? You know what I mean? Like, how mm-hmm. did you? How did? Look at I'm a. I've been a New Orleans Saints fan for over 30 years now, right? So I've lived through a few of these, specifically the Minnesota Miracle or whatever it's called. Uh, Right. You know, I remember, you know, just turning over to my brother who was watching with me and saying, like, I can't believe that happened, but I can believe it happened. But, um, right. But, uh, (laughs) I mean, wow, right? Like, what, what, what what do you remember about that one? I just, like, a, a, a blocked punt return for a touchdown to win the game on the last yeah, play? Yeah, and they really didn't even block it. The, you know, the, <laughs> it was real a drop, I'm yeah. I'm sure the people listening will remember, you know, Michigan had the lead in the final seconds. It was going to be a huge win very early in his tenure for, you know, Jim Harbaugh in a rivalry game. And basically all they had to do was get the punt off, and the game was over. And, you know, I thought Chris Spielman, who was my partner, did a great job talking about, you know, this is one step and kick it. And, you know, and there was so much else that went into it, but I thought Chris did a great job setting it up. And then, 
you know, the snap was a little low into the punter's right, but he, you know, it was a ball he probably should have fielded and got it off. But he, as I said, had trouble with the snap, and then, you know, it kind of popped up in the air. And Jalen Watts-Jackson for Michigan State, who was certainly an unheralded player, snatched it out of midair and took off running. And it was one of the great, I mentioned my spot, was off the Patrick's own earlier. You know, it was one of the great performances in spotting history because he immediately knew who it was and was very emphatic in pointing at our chart at Jalen Watts-Jackson. So, wow. you know, there's nothing more in a big moment like that where there's a sudden change in possession. You, you know, you want, you want to make sure you're the right. There's nothing worse than saying, you know, there goes Jalen Watts-Jackson. He scores on the last play. Oh, wait a minute. It was actually Bob Smith. You know, there's, <laughs> there's not, you know it just totally ruins the call. Ruined so, it, yeah. uh, you know, to, to know that we had the right guy because of, you know, how emphatic Zach was. You know, you, you just don't want to have a moment's hesitation because that play happens so fast that in the back of your mind, maybe we have the wrong guy. So, you know, that that was a big part of it. It's the 10th anniversary of the sportscaster. Sean McDonough is back with us after a couple of years. I just want to do a couple more and I'll let you go, I promise. Um, sure. The, uh, I know I asked you about this last time, but the 98, the Nagano Olympics and you did the hockey I assume that means you called the Bure five-goal semifinal game against Finland, right? Russia and Finland. Do you remember that game at all? Yes, we did all the big games. Yeah. But I remember more about it was, you know, there's a lot I remember about Nagano in 98. It was the first time they really let the, the professionals yeah. play, the NHL yep. first time. play. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge story. It was the first time that women's hockey was a part of the Olympics. Yep, USA. And, you know, it was the first of many memorable Olympic games between the United States and Canada. And the yep. U.S. won. USA, yeah. Um, which you know, we talk about not being biased and trying to call it straight down the middle. On that. <laughs> Tough one there. But, you know, when you're broadcasting an American team on an American <laughs> network, I think right. it's okay. Yep. And it was doubly difficult for me because I knew a lot of the women on the team. And the two uh, coaches, Ben Smith, the head coach, and Tommy Mutch, the assistant coach, were both from Boston and really good friends of mine. And I remember when they won, Muchie kind of looking up to the perch where we were and, you know, giving me a big thumbs up and wave. And you know, I was just so excited for he and Ben and all the women on the team. So, uh, and, and what I remember about the men's side was, I, you know, Dominic Hasek was uh, tremendous uh, in goal for most Gratsky of the tournament. And it was, uh, yeah. Gratsky you know, not shooting was, in the uh, shootout. Yep. It was fun. You know, it was just, I love hockey. I love broadcasting hockey. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, one of those sports that on TV, it's okay to do a radio style call. As a matter of fact, you know, Mike Emmerich is uh, uh, much loved and deservedly so for what a great broadcaster and person he is. And, you know, he really does a radio style call on TV and it's, it's fine. I think it's appropriate because, you know, the puck moves quickly and the, you know, it's hard to identify who the people are who are handling the puck and passing it. So, um, you know, I, I love doing hockey. Uh, there's one thing that I wish I could do more of right now, uh, or for the past uh, several years, it would have been the opportunity to do more hockey. I was watching, if, if you ever get a chance, watch, there's like a five-minute YouTube video that's basically just the five Pavel Bure goals in that game, and you make a call on the one, you go, look at the speed on this guy, and I mean, oh my God, I'm a, I'm a huge Bure fan, so I'm fawning a little bit, but like, I have never, Connor McDavid has challenged this the last couple of years, but I've still never seen anyone skating as fast with a puck on a stick as Bure does on this one goal where he humiliates Teppo Newmanen, who's one of the great skaters in the world at the time. Um, 
Right. If you get a chance, check that out because it's a dazzling. Yeah, I'm gonna when we hang up, I'm gonna go find that. that yeah, sounds like a fun watch. A dazzling performance, five goals in an Olympic semifinal. Um, the Joe Carter one because I, I forgot to ask you this on YouTube. There's this MLB does this. They have some cool videos like this where they play the play kind of over and over, and they have all the different calls. You know, they have like your call. On TV, they have uh, Vin Scully, I think, did a call maybe for radio. They have, you know, the Blue Jays call, the Phillies call. You ever watch one of those? Uh, no. I've heard Tom Cheeks call many times. Right, the touch it all. touch them all, yep. Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home yeah. run in your life, I believe is what Tom said. And, um, you know, I've obviously heard my own several times. Uh, used on various platforms, but... Um, you know, I, I felt comfortable with what I, yeah. Just, as we talked about earlier, you know, you hope what you say, both in the words and in your tone, you know, matches the magnitude of the moment. And you know, I, I feel comfortable that that mine distance. Did you have a decent view in the in the Sky Dome? It's not the best. Did you get a good look right down the line? You know, or is it? I don't know. Where... Uh, you know, we were kind of up high behind the yeah. plate. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think. You know, we we knew off the crack of the bat that it had a good chance to be a home run. I mean, it was kind of out fast. Um, you know, it was a shot, but um, I think you knew as soon as he hit it. You know, people were asking me, "Well, you know," I wasn't sitting there thinking he's going to hit a home run. You know, you you as a play by play person, I think if you're doing your job the way you should, you are up there thinking about all the scenarios. If the ball goes here or there. Over there, you know, will they send the run? The outs there are, you know, what what's the situation that might uh, dictate how the people on the field react depending on where the ball goes? But I wasn't really sitting there thinking he's going to hit a home run. This is going to be over, you know. And right. <laughs> it was kind of the, the sudden jump that you know the, this game is over, the series was over, our time at CBS broadcasting Major League Baseball was over because CBS had lost the rights and right. you know, we weren't going to have it back the next year, so. I knew that was the last time I would do a World Series game. So, um, you know, there were they're running through your head while that's happening. Wild. All right, very last one, I promise. All right, so you have a wa- walk-off World Series, walk-off college World Series, basically a walk-off college football game. How about a walk-off national championship throw in a football game? Tua to Smith, right? Um yeah, just the, a couple you know, years that was ago. The, I did that for ESPN Radio, the national championship game between Alabama and Georgia. You yeah. know, Nick Saban deserves a lot of credit. He His made the uh, change at the half, not only to bring in a freshman quarterback that few people had ever heard of outside Alabama to a tongue of Iloa, but you know, Devontae Smith, who another guy very true few freshman. people had ever heard of. Yep, true freshman. Yeah, true freshman. I think the winning catch in overtime was – just his eighth catch of the year. I mean, he caught eight balls the entire year, which is another reason why Nick deserves a lot of credit. I just think he knew kind of talent both of those guys had, and obviously that was demonstrated uh, to full effect as their college careers went on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, another memorable play. I mean, Tua had just taken a terrible sack. Um, <laughs> what I think Saban, on the play before. I believe it was second and 26. Saban so, said he wouldn't um, have been able to throw it if he could have got out to him after taking that sack, but he didn't get out there and says something like that, you know, in the press conference. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, it's, it's those moments are, you know, they're in your mind. And it, you know, the season's over 
in, in an instant. It go like LSU. It looked like they were going to lose. I mean, you, one run down to uh, you know the guy hits home. I think that was the situation anyway. Or you know, Michigan State on the punt play. Oh, they're about to lose. You know, and then they won. And you know, it's uh, it wasn't looking very good for Alabama at that moment after the sack. And then all the electrifying long touchdown pass. And not only is the game over, but the season's over, and they're the national champions again. So, yeah, that that was another game I felt fortunate to be there. Is there one I didn't mention that's like a favorite of yours, or maybe an underrated one? Is there like one more that just comes to mind that you want to mention? And you know, in the context of this conversation, no, not really. Those I mean, are the a big few ones. Years ago, I spoke at a broadcasting class here in, in Phoenix at uh, Arizona State, and the professor asked me, you know, what would be your top ten, you know, calls or moments? I really didn't think about it for a while, and you know, as I thought about, it, you know, I was really lucky that. Uh, you know, most of them aren't as well known as the ones that you've already asked me about, Steve. But um, you know, I did a Tennessee uh, Arkansas football game the year Tennessee won the national championship, and it looked like they were about to lose to Arkansas. And then Clint Sterner, who was the quarterback for Arkansas, they're just trying to run out the clock, and as he moved away from center, he tripped over one of his own offensive linemen and fumbled. You know, I I screamed something about he stumbled and fumbled. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky that the right one just your mouth at the moment and um so i think that play you know especially with tennessee fans that call has been a kind of a part of a huge play and what turned out to be a national championship season for them um it wasn't one singular call but having the chance to do the six overtime game at the, at the big east tournament right. syracuse and yukon that was one of the most remarkable sporting events that i've ever seen you know, there was a great Florida-Florida State game in the late 90s where Jacquez Green got behind the defense. That was the first of my voice cracks, although I think uh, Sid Bream uh, counts as a voice crack. But the uh, that was an amazing game, and there were some amazing plays at the end of the game uh, that weren't necessarily a walk-off, but there was a lot of drama at the end of that game. Yeah, I guess it's like we said at the beginning. I told you, please, because I'm so old. Mr. McDonough mentioned you feel old. Um, <laughs> Sorry about I'm that. 58, but, uh, you know, which I don't think is old. I'm just joking. But the I just feel fortunate that I got a young soccer. You mentioned the yeah. World Series I did the reason when I was 30 years old. So, which at the time I was the youngest person to to do it on national TV. Right. It was not you know the team broadcaster that they used to bring to do some of the broadcasts. But that that station didn't last long because that rotten Joe Buck again. Uh, <laughs> he stole it again. <laughs> yep. Jumped. 20, he beat you by a few he years, too. He did his first World Series. So. Yeah. yeah, but there's some irony in that. That's the right word, because you know I have actually placed his dad um, sure. on the CBS yep. baseball, which made that that much more, because you know I don't think there's ever been a person in the Jack. Actually, what we've been spending most time talking about, you know, calling big plays, you know, I, I think he called and nailed as many big plays as anybody. Right. Uh, I don't believe what I just saw, you know, and get yeah, great the, the home run. See you tomorrow night. Uh, go crazy. Go crazy. You know, yeah. We'll see you tomorrow night. Uh, you know, the Twins Braves World Series. I mean, Jack had a tremendous number of calls. I the podcast are great as the rise to the occasion when those great moments happen. I've did that over and over again. And probably the most famous one we didn't talk about, we can do it next time, is the uh, Rip Hamilton, right? The uh, UConn. Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. I and mean, that's what we're talking about. Like when I sat down to list those 10, 
it actually became hard to limit it to 10 because, right. you know, that's another one. Yeah. Um, you know, that, uh, that was Connecticut and Washington in an NCAA tournament game with Bill Raftery. And um, they had several shots, as you know, at the buzzer. And then Hamilton at the buzzer, you know, it went in. And, um, uh, you know, what's funny about that is years later, there was a company that wanted to use that call in an ad. And they weren't granted permission, I think, by CBS. I don't know. So the, the ad agency called me and said, you know, would you basically Recreate. call it over again in the uh, studio? Yeah. And when I went to do that, I thought, um, this is going to be hard because it goes to what you talked about at the beginning, Steve, about, uh, you know, you're yelling over the crowd. Sure. So I was in a sound studio in Boston, and, and the the people who were doing the ad campaign were in New York in another studio. So one of the engineers in New York said, well, how about if I just blast crowd noise into your headphones down the line here from New York? <laughs> I said, yeah, because I think that's the only way I'm really going to be able to duplicate it or try to. So, wow, great so much of it is just yeah. the adrenaline rush in the moment. All right. Well, hopefully on uh, Monday, I know it would be a great delight to the very kind Bill Hoffheimer who set this up. There will be a uh, a likewise moment in Duke versus Miami. Uh, in the ACC, you'll be calling. Well, that. let's hope so. Yeah, we always hope for an exciting finish. You know, we all, you know, we we don't care who wins or loses. Uh, at least not the vast majority of the time, but we do hope for a uh, close and compelling game throughout. So, hopefully, that's what we'll have on Monday night. And you get to call that with a former Dukey, right? And Jay, uh, you guys will call that. Yeah, one with today. Jay Billis, yeah, yeah. one of my dear friends. It's another wonderful part of this business is you know the people you work with become some of your closest friends. Like if you ask me who are my closest friends, Jay Billis, Bill Raftery, Chris Spielman, Todd Blackwood, Jerry Remy, you know, a lot of my very, very closest friends, uh, you know, people that I've worked with. So that's been a real blessing to not only to have had the chance to do a lot of these great games that we talked about, but to work with people who are not only great at what they do, but are even nicer human beings who uh, I'm blessed to call dear friends. Well, speaking of that, you know, I just passed 10 years of doing this and I never would have been able to do it for this long without people like you being extremely generous with your time, uh, not just once, but now I think three or four times. So I can't thank you enough, really. Uh, it's, it's it's my pleasure. It's an honor I, know, for me. Um, I remember when I, you know, I had a talk show and uh, back in you know, Syracuse when I was a student starting out, you know, I did it a few other times over the years and. I never liked it when somebody said, no, I don't have the time to do that. And, you know, I appreciate your passion for this. It's uh, certainly a subject I love talking about, sports broadcasting. And you do an excellent job. So Thank you. If you're desperate for a guest another year or two, <laughs> <laughs> the real stars of this business like Joe Buck can't do it, well, feel free to reach out to me again and we'll chat some more. All right. Thank you so much. Honestly, if I if I had to make a top 10 list of the uh, the great moments of this show, it's being able to talk to Someone like you certainly would be in the top 10. So thank you very much. I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate that. Nice of you to say. And stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon. I flew too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. 
right, I want to thank Sean McDonough <laughs> for being on the podcast. You know, I think I mentioned to him that when I was watching Game 7 of the 1992 NLCS between the Braves and the Pirates, my mom got home from work right around the time the top of the the inning and we watched that together in the kind of living area on the uh, second floor of the house I grew up in outside my bedroom you know and I can remember the his voice and the call and the game and the play and watching with my mother and I started this podcast to talk to the people who made those calls you know that's why I started this so to have him on is incredible for me. All right. Another reason I started this is because I had read a book called Death of the BCS, sort of the unofficial first book in the Sportscasters Book Club. Uh, but the first book of the book club for 2021 is a book called Hockey's Hot Stove, The Untold Story of the original insiders and it's a guy it's by a guy named L Strachan. I don't know. I'm going to have to learn his name. <laughs> I'm sure I've heard it a million times watching the outsiders or the outsiders. Uh the insiders the hockey hot stove. So here's what this was. So on Hockey Night in Canada, uh they used to always have a double header. And in between the double headers uh, Ron McLean would lead a like a panel discussion with three or four hockey insiders, and they would talk about the rumors of the week. And Al was one of those guys that was on quite a bit, and he wrote a book about it, which I just started and am loving, and I can't wait to have Al on. He's going to be on in a couple weeks. And I'm excited to start the book club this year with a hockey book, and I'm excited to read it myself. And I'm excited to hear the stories. And again, like Sid Bream, you know, I remember watching this. I remember what I used to always watch the second game on the doubleheader because often it was a chance for me to watch Pavel Bure. You know, when he was in Vancouver, they would very often be uh, the second game of the doubleheader. So many times I would come home from my job as a busboy and lay down in bed and watch. Uh, watch the hockey's hot stove uh, with Ron McLean as I got ready to um, to see some beret before I fell asleep. And you know, a few years ago, Ron McLean wrote a book, and they sent me one, but would not get Ron on. And it's it's one of my great disappointments doing this because I just love Ron McLean. I would have loved to have him on, but it did not happen. So that's the book for now: Hockey's Hot Stove, the untold stories of the original insiders. And you know how this works. Right now, it's one, but before you know it. There'll be two or three or four. All right. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, Brian Curtis from The Ringer will be on. And you heard what I had to say about this interview at the top. But I hope you still listen. I know maybe I did a horrible job selling it. Uh, but look, at I'm being very harsh on myself and critiquing my own performance. Maybe you'll find – I think the topics we talked about are interesting. I just don't think I did as good of a job as I should have pulling the best out of Brian because Brian's great, and Brian is great here too. 
Uh, but I think it could have been better. And I wish we just would have had a little bit more fun. Uh, but I'm, ex- I, I'm excited for you to hear it. So enough talking about it and maybe talking you out of listening to it. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Brian Curtis. And then I'll be back on the other side of that uh, with some plugs and one last thing. That's enough of that. Our next guest is from Texas and, of course, is a graduate of the University of Texas and presumably wears around those hideous-looking orange outfits. Uh, But he's one of my favorite guests, too. It's been too long since he's been on, and I'm excited to have him here tonight. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Brian Curtis. How are you, Brian? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Missed you for a bit here. 2018 was the last time you were on. (laughs) Well, you know, there have been so many bad Texas seasons that I've just been laying low. You know, I I can't hear Boomer Sooner one more time. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. I'll always answer for the Longhorns. Now, look, I know this is not something we can go deep into, but it was because of the union thing, right? I mean, we can just... That was why, right? That we haven't talked in so long. It was. It was just. It was just. I was just laying low for a while. I'll put it that way. Right. I was just, you know, laying low. You and, didn't. You didn't see me, you know, making around. I was just laying low for a while. Right. Okay. So. Okay. Fair enough. Well, it's good to have you back. Whatever the whatever the reason was, I'm glad that you're we're able to talk tonight. In 2000. I'm happy to be back. 2021. Um. I always love talking to you. All right. Let's talk about what you've been doing since because. Normally, when I prep for an interview with you, I read all these articles and some really good ones. And now I can't find articles and I'm listening to podcasts. Are you (laughs) are you like are you fully morphing like Simmons did? Are you going from writer to podcaster or what what's happening? No, no. Okay, I'm still a writer. All right. But you know, when you do two pods a week with uh, with David Shoemaker, who I love, you know your time yeah. does get. He was great, right? Yeah. But uh, and that's great fun. But time just gets short, you know. Sure. So I have to sort of work it out. I was actually finishing up an article tonight when you called. So you know, it's just kind of balancing everything. Which I guess it was funny because when I was a pure <laughs> pure writer. I would look at these people at ESPN and there'd be like really great writers that I would like. And then they would start doing all these TV things. And I'd be like, man, I, I hate that that person isn't writing as much as they were. Cause they right. were such a good writer. And right. I like that, you know? Yeah. And now I've sort of morphed accidentally or on half on purpose, half accidentally into that person. And it's funny and it's fine. But I, but I love, I love doing both things. So did no you, complaints. Did you expect when you started Pressbox? I remember when it started, it was modest. It didn't even have a feed, right? You were on one of the kind of generic ringer feeds, and um, it's kind of evolved 
uh, over the last, I guess, you know, the gap since we've been talking. I think, like, last time you were on, it was a young show. You know, it was episodes in. And now, did, did you expect this? What, how did it happen? Do you know? Or did it just sort of, you know, one day went into one day, and next thing you know, you, you're six to one podcast to articles? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I never had a, I just didn't have a vision of myself as anything but a writer. Right. So it was just hard to think of like, well, what this podcast turn into when shoemaker said he wanted to do it with me. Then I got excited about it because you know, it's like my best friend and I are doing it together. And then, and now, yeah, I mean, when you talk about numbers like that, I'm sure you've had this feeling too, given how long you've been at it, you just look up and you're like, Oh my gosh, how did we do so many of those? Yep. You know, not that everyone has been an A plus or anything, but you're just like, you sort of understand how radio people operate. You just like, you just have to do shows, right? Like I could do a show. I got to do another show. Well, I know. And you just sort of turn into an innings eater. It's very funny. I mean, when I started this, like I just passed 10 years a couple weeks ago and you know, I didn't start it to do it for 10 years. I just started it literally to do it for one day because I had leveraged a podcast I didn't have into an interview with Jeff Passan. So I, I had to have, you know, I, I literally, I had him on at the 10 anniversary show and I read him at the, I'll read it to you too. I have a tweet that I found, you know, you can search your old tweets. Um, and I use that feature for something other than personal destruction is it's so often used, but it basically just said like, Hey, I read your book. Will you come on my podcast? And I looked at the date, and it's like, I didn't have a podcast on January 3rd, 2011, you know, so. <laughs> but he did. But you did as soon as he said yes, He right? said yes, and then I said, all right, well, I guess I need to have a podcast, you know. it's uh, we're, Anyone have a microphone? <laughs> it's sort of how it happens. It's really funny because it's just like it's a matter of finding, you know, uh, finding your voice sounds really pretty grandiose but it's just a matter of like figuring out how to do it in front of everybody mm-hmm. you know it's like okay i'm just gonna put this out there and you know i haven't like i haven't gone to vocal school i haven't gone to broadcasting school or any school and i'm just like okay i'll just we'll just figure this out in real time and you know when doing it with a partner is also funny because we're friends in real life obviously right but from high school sometimes yeah, but sometimes, as we've seen on TV, friendship in real life doesn't turn into like something good in another form. It just it's just weird, right? It just doesn't mm-hmm. translate all the time. So I think another a, a way he and I have you know really tried to work on. I'm sure we've talked about this, but just happened. It's just like how do we how do we how is our real life friendship turn into a podcast? Right, it's and just a funny question to think about. And you probably have had conversations in real life. And then you look at each other and said, oh, maybe we should have done that on the podcast, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's that horrible feeling where you, like, you finish, you turn off the mics, and then you have, like, a really funny 10-minute thing that was better than anything you just did over the last 45 minutes. You're like, oh, man. So many times. Yep, so many times. Especially with people that I get to know. You know what I mean? And then there is, like, that after-the-mic banter. And, you know, you record it under the assumption that, you're not recording anymore, so it's, you know, you got to delete it. But it'd be nice to use some of it, you know. <laughs> the basement tape, yeah. Um, you were talking about the beginning and finding your voice and all that, and um, I haven't said anything like on the air about it, but 
someone's doing an article on me and they they listened to that first interview and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I when the next time I talked to him, I was like, oh, I couldn't listen. And he's like, oh, well, you sounded nervous at first, but you settled in. And I was like, oh, I don't even want to know what your definition of settled in is because I doubt it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it, I think it's funny because if you'd like, if you polled every print journalist in America, they would, I mean, 95% of them would tell you the worst part of their job one of the worst parts is listening to their interview tapes listening to themselves on their interview tapes right because you ask questions you're like god why did i ask it that way oh my voice sounds weird and then when you kind of divert in part of your life into podcasting you're just doing that all the time right like that tape is what you're now kind of creating so that's just it's just weird did you have that with writing too like can you read something you wrote day one at the ringer or you know a job you had when you got out of college or whatever like is there a cringe period in your own mind for your own work that <laughs> you can't even it's read a paragraph cringe. yeah all of it right it's all cringe yep yeah yeah it would be really hard to do other than just as like a curiosity yeah or something i wouldn't know i wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it yeah let's Mm-mm. let's talk about the show for a minute because so look at it's fun to congratulate myself about doing this for 10 years, but I'm also very self-aware that like no one can tell me not to do it other than me. Right. So it can go on as long as I want to do it, you know, um, you know, in the real world, it, it doesn't quite work like that. You know what I mean? Let's, you know, like I feel sometimes I feel, you know, that conversation Jerry Seinfeld had with, uh, with Larry King, where Larry, King, Larry King, like, ac- like accidentally maybe sort of implied that Seinfeld may have been canceled. And Jerry's like, canceled? Canceled? You know who I am? Larry, 85 million viewers. <laughs> it's like, I, sometimes I feel like I have that interview with myself. You know, like, were you canceled? Canceled? I can't be canceled. Do you know who I am? I'm the guy who decides. Um, <laughs> where do you feel like... So, yeah. Yeah, but the, the point I was going to get to is, like, there's a million of these, right? And, like, even... Since we since we both started and you started a little bit later than me, but post pandemic, there's like an 85 percent increase in the number of them. Right. And I read some stats the other day. I think, you know, the median average listening to a podcast is like 140. The number of listeners for like the median podcast, like that's how many there are, you know, and mm-hmm. um, what do you think you've done to kind of create your space your niche like how do you think you've evolved because one thing i think of is like oh there's a lot of podcasts and then i think like oh there's a pot there's a lot of podcasts that how do i put this like look at the news the way you guys do you know and then there's like a lot of podcasts about the news there's just a lot of space so how do you find your thing you know how did you guys do that do you think you have yet like yeah it's a it's a really good question i mean i think one is you just get better at anything you do over and over again Reps. so i hope it's the less yeah i hope when you're talking about like how you change over the last 10 years i hope it's just the less it's a better listen generally speaking you know i think in a couple different ways i mean one is to try to get interesting guests and kind of get a, a kind of you know collection of guests that are different from what other people have you know i think one thing when we were thinking about doing it, i just I, I felt like you know there were lots of sports media podcasts in the world including yours 
you know, where mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't, if I'm just going to go out and get the same people that these people are already getting, you know, and even if I would ask them different questions, we all ask them different questions. I just don't like, I didn't, that I felt that had sort of been done. So, you know, what was, I think interesting for us was just to kind of take a broader view of the media. So we'd have a sports person on, and then we'd have a reporter from the Washington Post on, and then we have, we have John Krakauer on this month, you know, and just kind of like get, find lots of different kinds of people and just make it an interesting mix. And I think that, I think that in a way is stand out, but I think at the, at the end of the day, you know, we've just got to be, we just try to be as good as we can. Right. And work, you know, work on segments and think of funny ideas and, and all that stuff. I don't know. It's funny. I haven't, I guess I haven't thought of it a whole lot. Cause it's almost like you're so busy doing the next one. that You only have time to zoom out to 10,000 feet all that much. Is it fair to say you guys are liberals or no? Sure. Okay. Um, I, mean, I think I can speak for David. I can certainly speak for myself. Okay. So you're not hiding that, right? Because sometimes you hear like, no. who was it? Michael K. Did you hear Michael K. Like got furious at someone the other day because he called him a liberal? He's like, you don't know who I am. You don't. It's like, well, all right. Yeah, I wasn't in the voting booth with you, but like I've listened to you and read your output the last five years like you know like i don't know if i was surprised michael uh, peter rosenberg also was like yeah man how would you know like oh peter like come on um so so i didn't know that it was i was worried it maybe it's touchy to say that but here's what i want to know like so the last couple of years of your podcast has very much been dominated by the trump era right and he's a very mm-hmm. easy target he's very polarizing um so now how will you guys operate now that the roles have reversed in terms of power and you know that the landscape is that of a liberal leader, you know, I mean, I've seen what I would describe if I'm critiquing the media, a very, 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 very welcoming approach to the new administration. You know, I don't know necessarily that's great for journalism. How do you guys feel about how things will change or stay the same minus Trump and with Biden? Well, I think in our in our particular case, there's a couple of things. One is that how the media changes, what you're talking about, going from this relationship they had with Trump to this relationship they had with Biden is like a really interesting subject yep. to explore. Mm-hmm. Right? That's going to be just happening. It already sure. is happening. It's going to be happening right now. You know, there probably is a little bit of a honeymoon. There's also a honeymoon with new presidents, uh, probably not Trump, but almost every other president that then disappears in a couple of weeks when there's, you know, lies and people feel like they're not getting the truth or this administration starts to make mistakes and then, and, and then the honeymoon period is over. So I think watching that happen will be really interesting. I mean, I just think also Donald Trump, whatever side of the spectrum you are, Donald Trump just gobbled up so much attention from the media, oh my God. right? Yeah. It was the, it was the so-called liberal media it was the newspapers. It was Fox News, right? Like it was always all about Donald Trump. You know that what I always the, said? That was like the singular. I always said his number one quality was making everything about Donald Trump. He's the best at that ever. Mm-hmm. You know, the best ever at making everything about him. So, yeah. And so the thing is, we're not going to do that many Joe Biden segments. We're just not. <laughs> Maybe unless Joe Biden like really changes, uh, you know, his character. And I think that's just true for everybody. So I think and one thing, and I think I've been saying this, uh, you know, internally, is we just have to be more creative. You know, there's not, there's just not going to be a thing where Donald Trump said something and he just kind of like programs the podcast for you. You just have to think, you have to be more creative. 
whether that's doing more like theme shows, whether that's just thinking about, you know, the media broadly and stuff like that. I don't like today we did a a non-Trump show and that maybe mentioned him glancingly or not at all. I can't remember, but it's, um, I think part of it's just like, it just makes you work harder in a lot of ways. All right. He was just such a huge, huge, huge subject. Let me put some cards on the table to be fair. Right. Okay. I've never voted for a Democrat in my life. Right. I'm a classic old school Reagan Republican. You know, I was born in 1980. It's a president the first time, 10 years of my life or whatever, eight years of my life, nine years of my life. You know, I'm a Reagan Republican. Didn't vote for Trump the first time, did the second time. Um, but that also more felt like a vote against wokeism than a vote for Trump. Um, and for someone like me, who not a Trump guy, not a Trumper, you know, someone who since, what was the date of the election? The third? Was that the date? What was the date of the election? The uh, third. November 3rd. That's November right. 3rd. Someone who since November 4th has said, man, he lost. Okay, on to the next. You know, like I'm not someone who's been, you know, spending the last three months talking about Conanin or, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively moderate but right-leaning Republican. Not moderate in the same sense as Mitt Romney, who, not sure you can call him a Republican anymore, but certainly I'm not some, you know, someone at the head of the Capitol riots or something, you know? I'm a far cry from that. But for someone like me, it's insane. It's it's a little crazy to hear, like, well, we're just not going to do Biden shows anymore. It's like, well, why not? Like, so much of... So much of and, and maybe this is unfair to your show because you're really, a, I guess, a, at the heart, you just want to critique media. Right. But like we both admitted, the guy was just so encompassing that sometimes it's hard to focus that way. But it's like, all right, let's just let's talk about Fauci for a second. Right. So when he would sure. dis, when he would disagree, when him and Trump would be on the opposite sides of things. Right. It was like. Oh my God! You know the administration's going against the science. You know he's screwing this up. You know, like unbelievable. You know, if he even thinks about trying to get rid of Fauci, da da da. Right? He Fauci's already went against Biden publicly twice. So like, but we're just not going to cover that stuff anymore. You know, like this is where I think. I don't know. Maybe this is a silly place to take this. You know, maybe. You're not the right guy. Maybe this feels like I'm accusing. I'm not really accusing you of anything. I'm just kind of talking it out. Like, sure. wh- why not? Like, why not? We're not going to look at this the same way anymore. Like, there isn't a, there isn't like, okay, so the Biden administration said there's no pl- there was no plan for the rollout. They had to start from scratch. Later that day, you know, fa- publicly Fauci says, no, of course there was, we're, no, of course that's not true. You know, we've passed out a million vaccines a day for the last over many days today you know Fauci comes out the science says that kids should be back in school the other day the Biden administration sided with the union it's like okay so now if you're someone like me you know I'm just waiting for I'm waiting for the mainstream media to and the media in general to come in here like where what happened well, I think I think there's I think it's kind of like I think I'm talking about something slightly different which is okay. like if you ask me like should the should the media cover Joe Biden, hold him to account just like they did Donald Trump. 
right? Like they should, yes. they should hold him to account. They should, if he, if he, if he says stuff that's doesn't true, if there's something like a rift between him and Fauci about where you're siding with one side and the other side, like I'm all in favor of that. I'm, I am totally in favor of that. I'm just talking about just eating, chewing the scenery, right? No, He's just yep. going to be less of a presence. And then and that trickles down. I mean, I think if you and I just looked at any newscast or newspaper, no matter what it was, right, it's just going to be – even Fox News, I bet, is less about Biden than it was about Donald Trump just because it's just – he's just not generating the kind of crazy stories every single day that mm-hmm. Donald Trump was. Yeah. And it doesn't – but I but I, told, I agree with you. you know, and by the way, these most of these media guys we're talking about and we can you you and i if we think of like it depends on what you call the media right because that's just a huge universe of people yep but i was talking about this with david the other day the newspaper people the top political reporters they get their merit badges by breaking stories they doesn't like their editors aren't like oh it's biden so you have four years off no 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 and they're very very competitive with one another so they're not they're not laying up they don't care you know it just doesn't matter to them you know they may be they may vote Democrat. I, I bet most of them probably do, but they don't. They just don't. That their sort of incentives are to break stories and, and break stories that are embarrassing or bad for the administration. They just don't care, you know. And I think that will be. And again, is are we talking about people on Twitter? Are we talking about who it is? But like those kind of political reporters, I would expect them to cover Joe Biden exactly the same way. You think that? You, and hope they would. You would put your money on that. That, that being the same. Well, again, it's sort of if we're talking about like it's hard, right? Because just Donald Trump did different things than Joe Biden is going to like. I mean, do you want to do? Could we say Joe Biden the same way they covered George Bush, something like that? I mean, just just Donald, it, the thing about Donald Trump is like the Donald Trump did very different things than a normal president. Well, so yeah, he's not a politician, is, first of all, right? So like he, so you just start there. So like just from the jump. Right. Yeah. Or even just like, let's take a very mild example, just tweeting all the time, right? Like, okay. like yeah, perfect. flagging people yep. in tweets, right? Yep. His enemy, his that number one enemy. Generates, yeah, that he, generates, or, you know, and saying me, you know, things about people that were mean or offensive or whatever in tweets, like that just generates different kind of coverage than just literally anything almost any other president would just do, right? Because they just don't have those kind of tweets. So if you're like trying to line it up one for one. Do we know it, if it Biden does, tweets at but, all? Like, is he a tweeter? <laughs> like, actually hits the button? Yeah, like, because we know Trump had his phone in his hand, like, in his boxers in the, you know, in the in the White House, like, laying in bed at five in the morning, right? Like, <laughs> it seemed like it. You yeah, can, you can I picture that, had, right? Uh, the social media guy did some of the some of the tweets allegedly, right? But um, yeah, I sort of doubt it. So it's just it's just it's hard, I think, to just line it up. Like okay, what did how did the media cover Trump on this day? Because Trump just did very different things than Biden this day. But on the parts of like government accountability, honesty with the American people, you know, are you saying things that add up? Are you not? Are you going against your advice? Are you keeping your campaign promises? I would expect them to do the same thing, and I would if they didn't, I would say it. Okay, well, it's been interesting because I've seen. I mean, already, you know, on the camp on the campaign trail, maybe slightly before the campaign, you know, Biden said that. Only dictators, you know, write executive orders, right? That's not democracy. How many executive orders has he written already? More than anyone ever, right? So, like, has anyone said that? I don't know. Like, is anyone on him about that? I've well, I've seen criticism of the executive order thing. 
including from Republicans in the Senate today. I, I'm, I'm going to admit that I have not looked at. at yeah, I, 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 I'm admitting I don't response. know. I don't know either. I'm admitting that as well. Right. I, don't, I don't know. You know, like because that's another thing. Like sometimes when I'll talk with someone, they'll be like, "Oh, you know, like you're saying this, you're saying that." I'm like, but sometimes I'm just I'm asking. Like sometimes I don't know. You know, it's like a, a question I'm. I literally want to know more. You know, I'm someone who I do care about media. You know, I studied media. You know, I've, you know, like I said, like this is partially a sports media podcast, not 100%, but a large percentage was certainly born in that in that vein. You know, I spent more time reading Rudy Martsky than anyone else in the USA Today. You know, so. Yeah, and I would just say generally speaking about when we think about like are we satisfied with the media, just remember that Democrats – as aggressive as the media was against Trump and as many stories as they broke about him, including, you know, stuff that was just happening in the Oval Office five minutes ago, I would say that lots and lots of Democrats slash liberals were unsatisfied with the way the media covered Trump. Insane. The media That's, was insane. Too easy on him. That's insane. That's but insane. See, but, 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 but it, goes, it just goes to the larger point I'm saying. It's like, I don't know if anybody's ever going to be happy, you sure. know, That's at fair. the end of the day. Right. That's fair. And I don't know, by the way, if people should be happy with us. In the media, I know it's like I don't I don't know that that's like part of the job that I'm you know going to satisfy everybody. All right, well let's let's move on to the, let's move on to the next issue a little bit. The same but different. So let's talk about the media and who gets to have a voice, right? Like, do you believe that big tech? Let's start with the yes or no. Do you believe that big tech has unfairly targeted conservative and conservative viewpoints? I was I was pretty persuaded that conservatives had done a very, very good job at lobbying big tech okay. under the Trump administration. Really? You know? Yeah. That they were, that, that there, that you could make an argument okay. that while that, that idea is out there, right? While tech is run by liberal people in Silicon Valley, that's, I don't think that's a, you know, generally speaking, I don't think that's too big of a generalization, but they had also, you know, why did Donald, why did Twitter decide at that moment that Donald Trump had broken their rules? Right. I mean, he'd been on the platform forever. Couldn't you have argued that he had broken the rules of Twitter discourse at some other point? Sure. I mean, it was at one point. Right. So, look, I mean, I just. Here's what I'm worried about. It's a tough question to ask because it's such a broad question. Like all of big tech has targeted conservatives. I mean, Donald Trump had the most popular Twitter account in the world or whatever. Fair. Here's what I'm worried about is that. You know, I, I've I've tried to be very consistent on things, right? Like, like I try really hard at that. You know, like when, you know, when the police officers in Texas were ambushed, I absolutely did not blame Barack Obama. You know, and when uh, Steve Scalise was shot and his teammates were shot in cold blood by a Bernie Sanders person, I did not blame Bernie Sanders. That's not his fault. Not his fault. But now it feels like every single Republican or conservative, even the ones who consistently, 100% everyone I follow, totally condemned what happened at the Capitol, feels like now there's like a payback or like a swing back. It's, it's like, a, like, okay, here's the opportunity. Now we can, now we can, now we can shut everyone up. And look what happened today with all of a sudden discord found hate speech in the the in the Wall Street trading discord the reddit closed off the trading dis uh reddit subreddit because of hate speech today 
Like today? I did not. I did not see that today. I just have been working on those things. I just did not actually see that story today. Yeah, they the the uh, Reddit. Cut, I don't know the names. I'm sorry. I should know the names, but Reddit eighty six, the biggest, you know, trading Reddit. The one of the driving forces behind this game stock insanity, which is insanity. Yep. You know, and they cited hate speech. It's like, come on. Anyone, like, anyone, anyone going to buy that? They belated. You're saying they. You're saying they belatedly found hate speech within the. Like they within just. The, they found it's, within the, It's kind of what you said. Like why today with Trump, right? Why today with, with that thing? It's. it's I just don't buy. I get uncomfortable with like. I think what happens is is it's like, okay, we're oh, they're private companies, yeah, of course, but it's about culture of the First Amendment, right? Like, okay, we're all for that. Um, but there is this, there's this rule of like, you got, there has to be decency, right? But then you expand the definition of the word decency to cut off what you don't like then. Cause there's really no definition of decency, right? We, we could both have a different definition of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, that's, and that's what's, that's what's I think been so difficult about this, right? Right. It's funny. We were talking about on the show today, we were talking about reporters tweets. You know, because some reporters have been fired because they're, they're lost their job because some they tweeted in a way they're time, right. Yep. Would you? Yeah. And, and on the what, left, this what's time. funny about that is right. there's no way to like for an employer, and this is it's, I think it's a larger symptom what you're talking about, or a smaller symptom. It's just like there's no way for an employer to tell you what to tweet, right, and not to tweet. Right. There's no guide. Now you could rule off certain things like that's just horrible. You know, I don't want that ever coming out of your mouth. Right. Sure. When it comes to like jokes and stuff like that, and especially people who are doing kind of edgy stuff, how do you write a, how do you write guidelines for that? What is the, what is the, what is the, what is the, uh, what are the guidelines? And we're like, there's just impossible to write. And it's always, and we were saying this today and in terms of the media, it's always going to be enforced differently. Right. If a person who's a famous, you know, person at their company does something, they're going to get much more leeway than a person who's not famous, you know, and is not as important to the company. So do you I guys don't, believe, I don't, I've never understood like what a social media policy would even be. Do you guys believe the New York times when they say that that girl was not fired for a tweet? I'm sorry. I don't know her name. I didn't know who she was. Um, Lauren Wolf. Okay. There you go. Yep. Uh, they say that there's rumor that, but she was not fired for a tweet. Where, I I don't know. Again, he, this is me asking. I don't know if she was or wasn't. What's your opinion? There was a, yeah. There's a piece in Washington Post that talked to her, and essentially she said she'd been warned about a previous tweet. So they're saying uh, not one deleted. Okay, so I see they're being yeah. slick there, right? They're saying she wasn't fired for any single tweet to make you think it wasn't the tweets, but the truth is it's the tweets, just more than one of them. Yeah, and, and her okay. contention is that she was fired for a single tweet. And that's what, again, what she said to the Washington Post. You know what I want? Nobody to be fired for tweets. I mean, unless, no. you know, look at, okay, we could I think there's some, find there's some, some to lines, agree on. Right? There's, yes. some there's some we oh. could agree on. But doesn't it seem like when, when those some... ones happen, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's been three years. Our, 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 uh, our rhythm isn't quite what it should be, right? Uh, I think when, <laughs> no, go for it. when those ones happen, they seem to be so universally agreed upon. Right, like you can, it's almost like you know what those ones are, because depending what side the offender came from, everyone's like, "Hey, yeah, that that you you can't they cross the line there," you know, like I don't know. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and a lot of times I feel those people are actually banned from not only do they suffer whatever consequences from the company, but they actually wind up being banned from Twitter, you know, if right. it goes to a certain place. Right. You know, with like actual threats or, or things like that that are beyond the... Right, like I don't know a like, lot of... This is a good example. I don't know a lot of conservatives, not the ones I follow, that are like, man, we need more Alex Jones. It's just not enough Alex Jones. <laughs> I have not heard that particular sentiment. You know what no. I mean? Like everyone's like, okay, well, you know, that guy crossed the line. You know, yeah, I more than know. once, right? So, and then that, there tends to be like a universal agreement on that. You know, it is. Mm-hmm. It was strange for me, and again, like I'm not a Trump guy, but it's strange to me that like Trump's not allowed on Twitter, but like Iranian dictators are on there, you know, like the Ayatollah is on there. Like, is that not sh- a little strange to you? I did. I did find that a little bit strange. Right. And I think, look, and Facebook's dealt with that, right. Facebook's dealt with that in particular, right. Where they found, you know, things in other countries, crimes perpetrated, and people have been, you know, those places have been used as a tool. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an a, interesting it's an interesting media discussion because I'm just interested to see. I think you are more optimistic about how things will go in the next four years than me, but it will be interesting to see, you know, really how it, how it goes. And it's also interesting. Well, okay, go ahead. I would just, I don't know if, I don't know if I am optimistic. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I, I find, I don't know. I don't know how optimistic I am. Okay. I'm not pessimistic, but I'm probably just like, we'll see. Okay. Interesting. I mean, and what are we optimistic about? Like the way the administration is going to have or just the way America is going to go? I mean, that feels like a lot of different questions. True. I guess I was thinking you're more optimistic that the media will be um, fair in its uh, doggedness towards the administration. Now, what we were, what we were talking about earlier, you know what I mean? Like, you seem more to just kind of believe in the the drive of the journalist, and that they, above all, despite their own political leanings, you know, are here to break down the story or whatever. And I'm a little bit more skeptical that, you know, it feels so far like I'm kind of getting this vibe, uh, this vibe of, oh my god, it's so refreshing now because all my friends are here. And those people that I don't like and don't agree with are gone. Thank God. Yeah. Well, it's just part of what it is is it's it is hard to define the media, right? I can't defend the media. Sure. <laughs> That's everybody, right? And I'm not defending everybody. I mean, we wouldn't even defend every newspaper journal. I just think as a class, generally, and I'm talking about a very, very small number of people, probably less than a hundred people that I would look to and I would expect and, in fact, believe will cover this administration very very fairly because it's in there and because they'll that's what they do and it's in their incentives to do it here's what i'm really but, you know when when we start to like talk about will this cable show host do this will this person who tweets all the time do like i don't like i don't know i can't possibly speak for them because they don't they're just not doing the same job Here, here's what here's what i'll say and i want to ask you something i want to get my again i want to I understand something but here's the thing i'll say like if i turn on tucker carlson right I know going in when I'm getting there, right? He isn't hiding. Yeah. He isn't hiding it. If I turn on Don Lemon on CNN, I know what I'm getting. He's not hiding it. I get it. If I turn on the Ben Shapiro show, which I do love, probably my favorite 
If I'm going to listen to any, I try to not to listen to something partisan. If I'm going to listen to anything partisan from, it's probably going to be Ben Shapiro. I think he's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know what I'm getting, right? Where sometimes, like with the Washington Post, the New York Times very much so, um, the network news stations, I think that they are telling me I'm getting fair and unbiased, and I'm not sure about that. Well, I mean, it's like I said, I just don't know that it's ever going to get even. I don't know that the perfect universe exists, you know, where they would, where there would, you would feel totally, you know, at, at peace with that. Right. Sure. And by the way, let's just, let's just say this, the incentives for all these opinion guys we're talking about, their incentives are to tell you that those places are unfair. Right. Because that, that bolsters them. I'm the one you can believe, not the lying New York Times and Washington Post. Their incentives are to tell you that they're not fair, that they're crooked and they're liberal or they're whatever. So I, I would I always just keep that in mind too, right? Every, everybody has different incentives in this. You know, I would say that would talk with sports radio Sports radio, I had a conversation with Colin Kirby like about this one time. He's like, you know, sports radio hosts say, everybody's lying to you but me. <laughs> and the reason they say that, Smart. I mean, want, maybe they believe it, at some level of their being, but the other reason they say is because they want you to listen to them right. and tune everybody else out. That's just, that's a thing, right? That's, and it's much bigger than politics. Right. Well, so I, I just keep that in mind. I think one of the most destructive things about politics is the person talking about it always thinks that they're on the side of the righteous, right? Like you never think your opinion is. Sure. Right. So, I mean, I'll admit that fully of, of my own opinions, right? Like <laughs> they come from a place where I couldn't imagine that they are not righteous right i mean i don't know maybe that's not the right word but you know what i'm saying like very few yeah very few political speeches start with i am i am on the bad side i'm on the bad team now let me tell you my all right we sucked up so much time in this last thing about this and we'll do a couple more quick ones and i'll let you go um okay what are your five three whatever where do you go for your news how do you do you try to find a level of balance in what you consume in news do you feel like you like what what where do you go where what do you still trust right because we have to make these everything we've talked about like the individual needs to make a decision i guess on okay that's who i'm going to listen to that's who i'm going to trust that's who i'm going to believe All right, i'll roll with that you know like where, where do you stand like what do you seek out what are your top things i so i would say mostly newspapers Okay. If we're unless we're doing it for the podcast, unless we're doing it for the podcast, I don't watch a lot of cable news. I almost watch. You know, like if I'll, I'll, Mm -hmm. you know, I watch more like during the election returns. You know, when it like because it was just kind of like a reality show that was happening for a week. You know, and that kind of stuff, and it was interesting. But unless we're doing it for the pod, I really don't watch much of that. Um, I read newspapers. What else do I read? I mean, again, I read so much sports stuff in my daily life. Any podcast? I'm reading like. I'm trying to think if I listen. To, I don't really listen to political podcasts. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're mostly, really. mostly. I can't think of any. Mostly newspapers and probably websites, right? Newspaper websites. Yeah, I mean, I'll do them like a la carte. I'll find one like, hey, I want to listen to this because it was an interesting guest or something. Somebody I want sure. to hear, but I'm not like mainlining those things. And then I listen to things like you know what I like to listen to when I'm driving around. And I have Sirius in my car, and I listen to BBC World, which is just really interesting because. Their top story, even uh, during the Trump administration, would often be like, here's something that's happening in another part of the world. 
and it was just very nicely reorienting to me to understand that like things are happening all over and whatever cable news is on fire about right now is not the may not be the biggest thing in the whole universe and uh i find that has a nice effect on me too do you ever try to like okay so you said yeah i'm a liberal guy do you ever try to seek out some conservative news to try to see what get out of your bubble so to speak this is something the last year i've tried really hard right like i feel like i we all create these bubbles that we live in and i've tried very hard personally to break out of the bubble you know and try to create some balance like I'm trying to be self-aware and say, like, you know, I listen to, like I told you, I listen to Ben Shapiro. Every once in a while, I listen to those Obama guys. What what are they? Save, mm-hmm. God save the pot. What a, whatever. Yeah, pot called. save America. Pot, yeah, exactly. You know, I'll try to listen to those. Like, I just try to seek out some balance. And when you do that, what, where do you, where do you go for that? Like, where do you think? Like, okay, that's good balance. Let me hear that. That's it. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, I'll read like National Review articles when I see them on Twitter. Uh, the bulwark, you know, which is kind of was anti-Trumpy, but I think generally conservative, right? Is that how we can, you sure, know, characterize fair. that publication online? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also when you watch, um, if you just like, I've tried to follow people on Twitter that do a good job of aggregating everything, because then just stuff crosses my stream a lot more. Right. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a person who does this well. Like, you know, a guy like his Dave Weigel writes the Washington Post, and he wrote for all kinds of places. But I find like he just. I find people come up into his, he retweets just a lots of stuff, you know, and you wind up just getting a little bit from, from everything, you know, but yeah, I'll read, I'll read anything and not like, Oh, I don't want, I will I, I can't read that. My eyes will fall out. Right. I'll read anything. Uh, all right. Quickly. And it's like I said, and when, and I wish, I wish I had more time to survey the political landscape, but I'm actually just probably reading, you know, like the athletic. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. No, I hear you. I feel you. I have to do that. I have to do that too. I feel a little regretful. We spent so much time on this because it's so incredibly. I don't know. That's not that Sorry. fun, right? But I don't know. It was interesting. I just wanted to um, see no, where you're at on those things. Kind of what's going on, right? I mean, it's you know such a huge part of our lives, whether we want it to be or not. And I am, I am sincere in that. I'm trying to understand. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't claim to have the answers at all. You know, like what I, I don't know. Who am I? I'm just some jabroni in his spare bedroom doing a pocket. You know, I, I don't. Who am we're, I? We're all jabronis, right? Yeah, like uh, doing our best. Exactly. Any day now, Sheik's gonna humble my ass, and I'll accept it. But uh, how many viewers for the Super Bowl? You still follow that? What do you think about that? Yeah, I heard. So I always steal that from somebody else. I heard John Aram saying it was like going to be maybe dip under a hundred million this year. Yeah, I heard that which too. Which was um, I heard that too. Yeah. What is interesting to me is we don't have the week of hype leading up to it, which I would probably be part of. You know, if it were a regular Super Bowl, like I'd probably no radio hopefully be in Tampa. Right. Yeah, I was there last year. You know, and I kind of I'm kind of actually fascinated by the question of if you take all that away, is the Super Bowl the same? Right. They do just as many people watch it. I feel like a lot of pandemic TV has been like that. It seemed kind of muted before, even like the championship games, I would say. But then like 50 million people watched the championship, you know, watched uh, Green Bay, Tampa Bay. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I, w- I would expect it to be a, it's such a compelling Brady Mahomes thing that I would sort of expect it to be not, not, not too much lower than like Rams, Patriots, maybe right in that range. I don't know. All right, let's end on this. Have you paid attention at all, or has this crossed, 
let's just maybe broader. Like, I'm really fascinated sometimes by Barstool, right? Because, like, I'm not a Barstool guy. You know, like, I don't – I've never really listened to a full episode of Pardon the Take or whatever. You know, I don't follow – like, I'm not a Barstool guy, but I kind of am finding myself admiring Dave Portnoy. I mean, I hear all the time about what a bad guy he is, but, like, I also noticed he just raised $33 million and, you know, for a small business. Like, I noticed that, you know, and then the last couple of days, there's been this like crazy thing with the Women's Hockey League, which we have a team in Buffalo. I've never seen it. I know it exists. I'm a hockey guy, you know, but I don't know. There's this like rumble there. It's just like such a polarizing entity, Barstool. You know what I mean? And it seems like sports media is becoming dominated by polarizing entities like Outkick and Barstool and... Um, you know, maybe yep. maybe Skipper is jumping in and he's going to have this, you know, left wing sports platform, you know, on steroids with Jamel Hill and Levitard. And, you know, they're going to, you know, and then there's like Jason Whitlock, who I mean is, geez, way out there, right? Like, I don't even know what the heck's going on with that guy. Um, what about like the polarization of sports media outlets like where, where, how do we get here what is this like how do you sort through it like i don't know yeah and i and i, I am kind of so to to answer one of the questions you asked here i think like i am interested in how big this is gonna get yeah because i do feel like as big as you know barstool is barstool is not most i mean no i don't know i would say that it's not all about that right there's a lot of it that's just kind of like i'm a i'm doing funny on the on the podcast kind of stuff Yep, that is not like explicitly political, maybe sort of political. Um, outkick is more like that, but I don't, I just don't, I don't think I have a great idea of what the public's appetite is for like highly, poli- if we call this like highly politicized sports media, I can tell you my I think appetite. They, there's, yeah. But I, so I would say, I think that, yeah, I would think there's something of an appetite in the world for this. I'm just talking about everybody. But I don't even know, like, and I don't even know, and if there was like a liberal equivalent kind of thing or whatever, I just don't, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of sports fans, you know, this has been true forever, and this is both sides of the whole, of the equation, everybody, they just, at some point, there's like, I don't want to hear this, you know, can you stop talking about this? That's just a real common reaction. Well, I still very much want to hear about the games. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even like, you know, if you go back, if you go back to like the big, the columnists who used to be very socially conscious, like they tried to write about these subjects in their columns, they weren't writing about it every column. They were writing like one out of three, one out of four, a lot of the time. And then they were writing like, hey, did you see the Bills game? You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's, I think it's odd. It's kind of odd for, it's, or let's say not say odd. It's different in American life for there to be places that are doing that all the time. And that is like, that's their primary function. Well, and I don't, I don't know what the ceiling for that is. I really don't. I, I don't suspect it's all that high. You know, I think the reason Barstool works is because Barstool doesn't operate to be in that space, but everyone who's critical of it sort of drags them into it. And they're very smart at like, playing the game like Dave Portnoy you know remember they did a real sports on him and I remember the next day 
he was all about how unfair it was. But it, it's like I know that Dave Portnoy knew that they would be unfair to him and and that he'd be able to frame it that way, and that's why he did it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like he's real savvy like yep. that. You know what I mean? He's really smart like that. And and that that I'm interested in that a lot more than I am than Barstool itself because I think they're just speaking to someone much younger than me. Like my younger brothers love it. Like I have a cousin who just graduated from college. He loves Barstool. You know what I mean? Like if yes. I if I draw his name in the Christmas exchange, I go to the Barstool T-shirt store and go eeny miny meeny miny mo, and you know he's happiest kid at the Christmas tree or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's um, but like I said. I just want, when you're talking about stuff that's actually just political, right? That's not part of my take or something like that. But like its purpose is to be that sure. from go, right. all of its purpose. I just don't know what the appetite is for that. I really don't. I don't think there's much. And I just think like you can maybe do something like, you know, where you, you get to a certain point, but I just don't know how much bigger. And again, I, you know, everybody who runs one of these things will tell you how much bigger they're getting all the time. And you know, are they really? Oh, Outkick know, loves. Really Outkick, Outkick loves to do that, right? Like that's the Clay Travis yeah. line. He, I, I, it's almost like if I see something from him, it's him saying how big he's getting. It goes to the sports, uh, the sports talk radio thing I was telling you earlier. Yep. Like everybody's lying to you, but me, me and my audience is growing leaps and bounds. <laughs> that's just kind of like the two go tos for so many people, and you know. Hey, I guess it works up to a point. All right. Well, Brian Curtis uh, writes for Ringer. He says he writes for Ringer. I haven't seen many articles, but he says he does. I do. Okay. Is, hey, hey, hey now. I, <laughs> I did write a piece this morning. Hey now. Hey now. Um, he writes for Ringer, and he does the Press Box podcast with my longtime personal close friend, Dave David Shoemaker, who wrote one of the best wrestling books of all time. And uh, absolutely the who, best. Yeah. And um, you can find those, you know, where you find things. Uh, anything specifically, <laughs> anything specifically you want to promote or mention or anything like that? Uh, I did a piece. Uh, I have a piece coming up tomorrow. Just just in case, just to make sure you can identify me still as a writer uh, about the Pat McAfee show. Speaking of sports radio. Ah, there's another the kind of polarizing with, guy, right? Interviews he did with Aaron Rodgers this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very uh, good. Which were I thought really, really fascinating that he did those on a weekly basis. You know what I don't like about Pat McAfee though? I'm not just not into the drug thing. Go for it. I'm not into the drug thing. The the drug thing? He's just always talking about smoking weed and doing weed and weed and weed oh, and weed oh, and, oh. and weed and it's like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> gotcha. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah I don't that, know. Like, that I okay. I, n- nothing wrong with it. I don't have any, like any judgment on it or anything like that. But it's like, eh. not your favorite subject. No, I don't. I don't know. Is this kind of like, I don't know. Maybe it's just like the era I came up in. Like to me, it's like something, you know, you do it right. in the garage or something like that. I don't know. Like I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's a little... you, you and I are from the the, the McGruff the crime dog. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's <laughs> it's like it's a little low brow to me. I don't know. It's probably more me. It's not. <laughs> I guess it's on me, but every time, every time I've watched a show within ten minutes, the subject of weed has come up. <laughs> oh man! So, but the Rogers things are really interesting. I did watch. Really... I watched the clip with him. Like I think I'm like you that you were. You know, you're a bit of an aggregator, and you see you see a video here, a video there. So I 
I see his stuff. And actually, I talked to Michael Lombardi, who has been really nice to me before. And I was trying to get him on this. And he's like, oh, I only do McAfee and whatever he does with Adnan Verk, right? And it's like, oh, all right. All right, fair enough. But it's like, oh, that's interesting. So, hey, McAfee's got the corner on Lombardi, too. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers and Michael Lombardi. Yep, Lombardi and Rodgers. He's got him. We got, we got our GM and we got a quarterback. We're yeah, good to go. He's good. All right, thank you, man. I'm sorry that uh, I took this long of your time tonight, and uh, but I'm excited to have you back. Are you back? Back no, or no, like? Are you, you back? I'm back. Okay. I'm back. All we're right. doing this soon. You just okay. you hit the bat phone, and I'm at your disposal. I want to thank Brian Curtis and Sean McDonough for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can hear this episode and all episodes from all 10 years of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Please email me if you'd like the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can tell me how stupid I am and how awful that last interview was if you'd like. Uh, fair enough. Uh, and if you get the chance, it's been a while and almost embarrassing how long it's been since we've had a review at all, let alone a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. If you can do that, my friend Peter Winston says it creates social promotion. Uh, speaking of Peter, greetings from Allentown, the number one wrestling podcast with one dude on it in the world. He is at Jeff Allentown Pod, and he released a new episode today, and I was listening to it earlier and it was about the Skywalkers, uh, which mean it was a WCW podcast. Uh, and to be specific, it was okay. So the, the 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 Apple Podcast app they really screwed it up. I can never find anything. Uh, NWA Worldwide, oh eight, oh five, eighty nine. The infamous skyscraper shoot. So that's his latest. Also, he has. Greetings from Allentown Live with the great Keithy inside the Steel Cage, which is great tape, and I really enjoyed this podcast. Check that out. That's the last two from my buddy, Peter Winson, at GF Allentown Pod for more. Uh, if you are a Colorado Avalanche fan, you should be listening to my friend, uh, Adrian Dater. You should be following his work at coloradohockeynow.com for more information. It's at a Dater. And don't forget about the new 24-inch podcast right here. On this podcast feed, it's at the number two, the number four inch podcast at two, four inch podcast on Twitter. Email me at two, four inch podcast at gmail.com. We try to put a new episode out bi weekly every other Monday or Tuesday ish. All right. With all that said, I guess it's time for one last thing today. You know, and it's been a while, maybe. And it's funny because it used to be it used to be about a joke on the podcast how much we talked about my brother Anthony. Uh back in the days of my friend Don uh being, you know, a co host and he was on the last podcast. Shout out to to Don. I love doing that with him. We used to joke, you know, that I had a few things I had to get in every show and it's like my brother plays at Yale, right? 
uh, was one of them. But I think it's been a while since he's been mentioned. And I was thinking about him uh, today because I just really miss my brother. You know, um, here's the thing. So he is 11 years younger than me. You know, and from the day he was born uh, until he was, let's see, nine or ten, we lived together. And then I went off to college and things changed in our family. And he lived with my mom in an apartment and I lived with my grandmother. Uh, but he was always as much my brother. He was almost like my son in a way. You know, I was I remember the first time I took him to the flea market to buy him Pokemon cards and how excited I was almost more than he was because I had some money in my pocket and a driver's license and the trust of my mother. And I could take her baby, her favorite baby uh, across town to the flea market of all places and buy him some Pokemon cards. And it was uh, it reminded me of when my dad would pick me up. And take me to the flea market and buy me a video game or whatever I was after. And, you know, we would do things like I would take him on weekends, hockey weekends. You know, we would do that. And it was just me and him. And I would take him to a tournament and pay for the room and buy his meals, all that. You know, it's like, you know, and I tried to teach him cool shit. You know, I taught him about Pearl Jam and cool music and. You know, movies I liked and shows I liked. And I like to think that he became such a great hockey player because he grew up in the locker rooms that I was in. I remember him, you know, running around my high school hockey locker room with his mini stick. You know. And when he turned, when he graduated high school, he left Buffalo to play in the USHL. And that was 2009. He was in the USHL for two years, then he was at Yale for four years, and then he was in New York City for almost two. So altogether, he was gone like eight years, and then he came home shortly after Paul was born. You know, he moved back home. And I remember just thinking like, oh my God, don't let him leave again. I just always want him to be here, you know? Because as much as I loved when he would come home, those eight years, I always hated saying goodbye to him. It never got easier for me to say goodbye to him when he would leave and go back to wherever. And of course, believe me, I was thrilled that he was going, chasing his dream. And man, you know, I loved going to USHL games and college hockey games. And I never did make it to New York City when he was a young professional living there to see his apartment. Uh, just never worked out for whatever reason for me, probably my health. But it was just sad to see him go, you know, like it was hard to say goodbye to him and, you know, be like, oh, when will I see you next? Oh, I don't know. Maybe this time. You know, but then he moved home and he was a young adult now and he lived on one side of the town and I lived on the other and he had a job and I had a wife and a colon that always shut off and a kid and he didn't have those things. And he was going one way and I was going another and I didn't see him as much as I would have liked. I didn't spend as much time with him as I would have liked. And then sometimes when we would be together in that era, it wasn't the best times we ever had. You know, it seems like we would just 
get down an argument or something. And it's probably my fault. There were good times. You know, maybe sometimes they weren't the best. And then this past fall, he got an opportunity that is unlike any. And he lives in New Jersey now. You know, and for the first time, he came home for Christmas. And he was home for, you know, eight days or whatever. And I didn't get to see him as much as I would have liked. Uh, but I know that, you know, when he's home for eight days, he's got to see everyone and do everything. But he did his best. Uh, but then I had to say goodbye to him again in that way that I had remembered from before. And when he did come home for Christmas, I was so happy because I really, really miss my brother. You know, and I'm feeling that way tonight because the last week or so, he's been a little out of pocket. And this happens with him sometimes. And he's off doing his thing and I respect his space. You know, and he doesn't need to hear from his 40-year-old brother every day or anything like that. I'm not his mother. And even though I joke that sometimes it felt like I was his father, I'm not that either. He's got one of those. You know, I am his brother. His much older brother. You know, and as much as we do have in common, we do also live very different lives. Again, I'm a father and a husband. He's a bachelor. He has no children. You know, he's had one surgery in his life because he broke his leg. You know, I had three in 289 days in 2019. He's healthy and athletic and handsome and I'm none of those things. But I just missed my brother and he came home for Christmas and it was great and I enjoyed the time and we had a great Christmas together and I was so proud of him. You know, he came in hot. He's got this great job and the gifts he bought everyone reflected that, you know. And I mean, really, it's nothing new. I've always been proud of him. So that was not a surprise. But then there was that moment, you know, the day before New Year's when I I said goodbye to him and not knowing at all when I'd see him again. And those were always the times I hated the most. You know, where I didn't know if maybe I'd see him next week or if it would be next month, but probably not either of those. It'd probably be longer. And right now, as we speak, I have no idea when I'll see him again, but I told him on the phone tonight I need more from him because for the last couple of weeks, he's been too far out of pocket. And I just, I need my brother. I need both of my brothers you know, and everything I'm saying right now is to not discount anything with my brother Greg or our relationship. I'm just right now, I'm just talking about my brother Anthony. That's all to clarify that. Maybe next week in, in, in the, in, you know, like with in presidential elections, if you got someone on uh, Channel 7, they got to do the equal time for the other. Maybe I'll do a, a Greg one last thing soon to balance it. Tell you how proud I am of the work he's doing during the pandemic. The hustle he's showing, learning new things that blow my mind. He even knows how to do them. Such a talented kid. So we'll talk about Greg soon, too, because I'm just as proud of him. 
you know, both my brothers make me so proud. But, you know, I wanted to do one last thing about Anthony today because I just miss my brother, you know. I miss my brother. I wish I could spend more time. Sometimes I long for the days where he was an eight-year-old kid and I was a 17-year-old punk and I got to see him every day because we lived together. And sometimes I long for the days where I was at Fredonia and he would be so excited to spend time with me there. And I miss the days of laying in my room in my apartment and being asleep and looking over next to my bed and seeing him sleeping there. Being in the sa- under the same roof with him again. You know, and sometimes I miss a night like I had in 2014 with him at the Yale Hockey House. The night that we raised uh, the national championship banner. Well, there's the day after that. They had played two games and He had scored two goals against Clarkson, three that weekend. And there I was, you know, one year, not even one year away from one of the worst months of my life. One of the worst times of my life. And I'm in the Yale Hockey House with my brother and his friends. And they're all singing Better Man from Madison Square Garden on the Pearl Jam 20. You know, like what a memory. What a moment. You know, but tonight I just miss my brother. So I wanted to do one last thing, I guess, about that, about the fact that shit, I miss my brother. I do, and I can't wait until the next time, you know, I get to see him, even though I don't know when that's going to be. Hopefully really soon. All right. The Sportscasters, 10 years in the making. I appreciate everyone who's listening. Hopefully that Brian Curtis interview wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Uh, But it won't be long until we be talking again. I'm going to interview Richard Deitch tomorrow. And then sometime in the middle of the week before the Super Bowl, Richard Deitch and Damon Hack, that podcast will go up. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay warm if you're in Buffalo. It's freezing out. 